You're listening to Just Asking. Why do we human beings, who are obviously so sexual, have such a difficult time talking about managing this intimate part of our lives? We talk about managing our money, we manage our careers, our diets, and even our stock portfolios. Yet, when it comes right down to it, we really don't know how to talk about managing our sexuality, and certainly don't know how to talk about doing it intelligently. Hi, this is Stephen Ng, and you're listening to Just Asking, where we talk about all things sexual. Uh, Jackie and I have been talking about how to have an abuse-free life, and I thought today maybe, Jackie, we could talk about how a person who's never experienced what it means to live an abuse-free life could get started. I think that's an excellent idea, because it's one thing to tell people to make this a goal. But if we don't give them the tools on how to do that, then that's not very fair, is it? No, and I, I, I actually, <laughs> I hate that kind of ad, uh, admonition from somebody. Like when you're reading a column on marriage advice and you get a, a banal uh, sort of directive about, you know, just be a good person or... Just, be, just be, tell the truth. Be yeah, honest with yourself. Be kind. You know, with all of those kinds of things are just, uh, it's like telling somebody with ADHD, you just need to get organized. Focus. Yeah. That, <laughs> it's really just useless information. So um, I can tell you, uh, first of all, I think building the, the the first step is building awareness as to what constitutes abuse. Now, I'm a recovering control freak, so I'm speaking to all the control freaks out there. And I want to say control freaks don't always come in the big, ugly lumps like myself with masculine voices and and the ability to yell. Sometimes control freaks... Sometimes they look like me. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> control freaks can be just absolutely adorable and speak in the most feminine of voices. They're very soft and engaging, but nevertheless are very controlling. And so the, the idea of uh, what is controlling and what is not is kind of encapsulated in that old uh, prayer, part of which became a, a mantra in Alcoholics Anonymous, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. The things I really can change would be the things I have control over and the things that I have legitimate control over. So I can change the way I think about things. I can change the way I dress um, because the way I dress is something that I have control over and it's also an area where I have legitimate control. Now, the way that you think, I can't even begin to change because I have zero control. But if I held a gun to your head, I could probably get you to start wearing some bizarre fashion that you would never normally wear uh, simply through intimidation. But that's an example of illegitimate control where I've crossed boundaries and it's really not my domain. It's not my area. So I wanted to talk a little bit first about what's mine versus what's the other person's and uh, give some examples. Now, for me, it starts with some really fun uh, little examples, and that would be, do I have the right to uh, have the kind of friends that I choose to have as friends? A lot of us um, try to control who our children's friends are, and I suppose there might be some extreme case where I need to take protective measures as a parent, but in general, uh, terrible friends are rather self-educating because they take advantage of us, they make our lives miserable, and they steal our toys, and then we move on because we dump them. 
but some people think uh, that when they get married to, to someone or they get into a romantic relationship, they suddenly have the right to be controlling because I'm, like, as with a child, I'm only doing this for your own good. I'm only saying this because I love you and, and I care about and you. And you're not smart enough to do it on your own, so I'm going to take care of this for you. Right, and it's more important that you see things the way I see them. So trying to control how my mate cuts his or her hair how they dress, those would be examples of illegitimate control because adults have the right to choose all of that for themselves, including what kind of music they're going to listen to, um, how they are going to be driving, how are they going to be um, socializing with their friends and, and all of that. Now, I can get mad, I can be annoyed, I can, I can be irritated by all those things, and at some point, I may have to decide, well, the fact that she likes to socialize with her friends till three in the morning every night, that's kind of a deal breaker. But it doesn't give, that deal breaker does not give me the right to control her. I can bring up the issue as, this isn't really working for me. And that's not controlling. Although I think people get accused of trying to be controlling when they say, that's not working for me, or I'm not, I'm not cool with that, or I don't really like that. Um, this. Yeah, I get, <laughs> you, look very, you look very full of something to say. Um, this was one of the best parts of maturity for me, of, of getting older, because I have always been a huge control freak. And when I got to the place in my life where I realized I can't control that, but I can control myself. And if I choose to walk away from that, right, so much easier so, so much easier. So much and, easier. For, and for us recovering control freaks, it's a control freak's paradise. It is. Because you finally figure out how to have all the control you you've do. ever wanted to have. <laughs> it's just that you have to focus on yourself and focus on your own life and let go of trying to control all the people around you who are not going to cooperate because they have their own crazy ideas about how to <laughs> that live they, life. And, and that they, they have this crazy idea that they control their own life. Right. And that, and that they should. Right. <laughs> Whereas if I were emperor of the world, uh, it would be so much different. Everything Every... would be perfectly wonderful. <laughs> so, you know, for, for those of us who are control freaks, and that, that really, I, I know we're being very glib about calling ourselves control freaks, uh, Jackie, but I, I think people who are controlling, and that includes virtually everybody out there who's listening, at some level we've all been controlling it's important to wrap your arms around that idea that you too can be controlling because that's the first step toward not being controlling, being aware of that. So um, now when I'm dressing a three-year-old, do I have the right to be controlling about what he or she is going to be wearing today? Well, yeah, I, I certainly do. But the whole goal of parenting is to prepare my children to take on a role as an adult someday. And little by little, I'm going to have to pry my my wee little fingers off of their life so that they can take greater and greater risks but, making decisions and being their own person. And even on that, when my son was five, you know, he, <laughs> he wanted to wear his snow boots to school in the summer. <laughs> and I tried to talk him out of it. He wasn't having it. I told him, um, people might laugh at you and you're going to get hot. And he wanted to do it anyway. And I said, okay, go. He wore the boots. Um, and the became a trendsetter. I the read next about day, him. everybody was wearing snow boots. <laughs> really? Is that really they true? They did. They all wore their snow boots the next day. They got hot. Obviously, it wasn't a trend that lasted. Well, the price of fashion. I mean. But, but yeah, that was one that we could have fought about that for hours and hours. 
but just letting him go do it. And yeah, he did it for two days, realized it was uncomfortable and stopped. Yeah. And that's what some therapists call natural consequences, where I don't need to be corrective because nature itself will teach my child that um, that's not comfortable or that's not going to work. Now, we don't want to use that with a behavior like uh, playing on the freeway. Sure. Because nature will teach them <laughs> that that doesn't work. But it's it, the, the lesson is far too harsh. So in, in those kind of cases, we use logical consequences. But we're talking about children here. We're not talking about adults we're trying to partner up with or adults we're trying to live with. And so part of having the abuse-free life is realizing what is really my stuff. Now, I've talked to other people who, my clients uh, and patients over the years, who get very, let's say, controlling about their partner's religion or controlling about their partner's drug use or their partner's uh, choice in friends because uh, that friend is clearly a bad influence on them. Well, you know, really, <laughs> it, an adult partner is an adult partner, and my adult partner has the right to make those choices. And if I'm horribly irritated, annoyed, disturbed, and, and fearful of those choices, then I have to consider the possibility that I might just have made a mistake in selecting this person for a partner. And I think probably the worst and that the most sexual aspect of this is when I'm trying to be controlling of whether or not my mate has an affair. Because then I'm the genital police, the sex police, running around saying, who goes there? Halt, uh, identify yourself, and, and trying to figure out um, or trying to figure out how to prevent my mate from having an affair when really, just like none of us can stop an alcoholic who wants to drink, uh, none of us can stop somebody who wants to have an affair from having an affair. And the more controlling I get over her genitals and her sexuality, the message is uh, the, less, the less those things belong to her. Those are more my domain. And, and, th and then she becomes more like a teenager in, in that I'm the adult and it's her job to sneak out of the house late at night so she can be with her boyfriend. And, and that's just crazy. So it's, it's really hard sometimes to give up control and to accept powerlessness, but it's the first and most important step in uh, having an abuse-free relationship. But there's more. You know, any, anybody who's really trying to have an abuse-free life is eventually going to cross the line and become controlling and abusive, even if in only some small way. And it's a horrible realization because for the ethical person, it means I've crossed a boundary. I've done something I consider morally reprehensible. I certainly wouldn't want to be treated that way. And now to make it right, to make it as right as I can at least, I have to approach my mate, remind her of what I did. You remember yesterday when we were talking about, you know, X, uh, it could be the kids or it could be about our sex life or it could be about our religion. And I said, blah, blah, blah. I said, you shouldn't feel, you shouldn't be that way. You should think the way I think, or um, you're wrong and you need to know that. Uh, whenever I take a tone like that, I know that I owe my mate an apology. And that's the next step. You know, after realizing what belongs to me and what belongs to my mate and realizing that I've crossed a line, then the only way to make it right is not to 
hopefully never bring it up and hope she didn't notice <laughs> because everybody notices pretty much. I need to acknowledge it, acknowledge my wrongdoing and then make amends by saying simply, uh, I'm sorry, I, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And, it, and sometimes, you know, we're all fortunate in that we, we get these very loving, kind partners who say, no, that's okay. Really, it was no big deal. And then we have to go another step further and say, no, it, it's a big deal because if you treated me that way, I would really want you to apologize to me. I went to a, um, a speaker, I saw a speaker yesterday on the art of the apology. And one of the things, he, and this was for corporate, but one of the things he said is that women apologize two times as often as men do. And one of the reasons that we apologize more is that men don't see things that they need to apologize for as often as women do. Uh, okay, I'm going to argue with you. Okay, that, but, okay. But I thought it was interesting, and I wanted to talk to you about this. I think women apologize because of sim- they, they're, they're so sympathetic or they're trying to make peace, peace really quickly because, as you noted earlier, if it comes down to a fistfight, they're going to lose. So they have an inherent interest in making peace quickly. Uh, particularly with a supervising um, a fellow employees, a supervisor. But I think, and I also think women offer false apologies about things that they're really not guilty of any wrongdoing. You know, they just are apologizing because the other person got hurt or the other person got angry or irritated with what she said or the other person resented the fact that as a supervisor she was acting like a supervisor and she feels you know self-conscious about uh well maybe he thinks i'm really bitchy or maybe he and and so women i think tend to do that more than men do i suppose it's also true that men are uh, lacking in some awareness but most of the men i've talked to at least um they readily accept, at least when they're, once they're made aware of an abuse-free, a need for an abuse-free environment, they do have some awareness of when they're being controlling. Now, <laughs> do they always apologize? Of course not. And a lot of us don't apologize because we're afraid and we really hope she didn't notice. And we apologize because of our, e- we fail to apologize quite often because of our ego and we don't want to admit we were wrong. I suppose you could say, well, maybe some men are more egotistical than some women and, and not quite, quite as humble. I'm sure there's some difference, but, but I think it's really a mixed bag and it's really hard gender-wise to... Um, I think it's, some gender stereotyping is really, really helpful because it gets us to a place where we can see the world a little more helpfully. And this, to me, is a, an example of gender stereotyping that I, I kind of resist because... Okay. I see morally, um, once men are aware of their abuse, you know, because that whole code of chivalry thing, they usually feel horrible about it. You know, if if another man confronts them, for example, and says, look, um, the way you treated her, that was demeaning. Uh, Most men, at least men who who don't have a personality disorder, most men are really, they just feel horrible about that. And I've had to to um, challenge my... Uh, male clients to confront their male bosses about abuse in the workplace. And you know what's funny? They're always afraid they're going to get fired. And 99% of the time over the last 20 years when they've confronted a male boss about abusive conduct at the workplace, the respect 
of the employee goes up. And instead of being fired, shortly thereafter, he's awarded either a, a promotion or a raise or both. You just gave me an entree into something I wanted to ask you. Sure. And, and let me know if, if I'm jumping the gun, because maybe you were going to get there. Um, we talk about the importance of our, ourselves not being controlling. Yes. But obviously the other side of that, and I have also been this person, and I know you'll be shocked, who, who <laughs> doesn't speak up, who... who just is, takes the abuse. Just And it's not even abuse. It's like something about where, you're, where, where you disagree on, say, uh, furniture. Right. Or art, you know, something completely innocuous. And I think that the other person is smarter than me. And so if we disagree, I'm like, okay, let's do what you do. And then I end up living in a house that is not my house. Right, right. And and I see men and women making that mistake alike. Um, so many men go to the furniture store with their wife and they sit there on a couch while she's making all the selections from the color swatches and fabrics and all of that. And that's why he moves into the garage with the refrigerator. Right. He has, has to have his man cave because it's the only part. <laughs> it's the only part of the house that really reflects anything of who he is. It's really not even his house. And and I know that it goes both ways. I know men and women alike, we struggle with this. And so gender stereotyping is, is not really helpful here. It's just something that we do. So if I'm going to have an abuse-free life, I've got to become aware of the boundaries and number two, I have to become willing to make amends when I cross those boundaries. But number three, I have to become willing to make amends to my partner when I fail to stick up for myself. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't, you know, when we were shopping the other day, I got to apologize because I did something wrong. No, you didn't do anything wrong. Yes, I did. What'd you do wrong? Well, you know what? I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't a good partner. You asked me what I thought and I just shined you on, and I didn't give you the truth about what I really thought. I hate this furniture. And the truth is, I don't want to be that kind of partner. I want, to, I want you to know you're getting the truth when you're talking to me, and I'm committing to never doing that again. I love that. Wouldn't that be awesome? It's so good, yes. Yeah, and if you really love each other as in a relationship based on equality, uh, then the other person is going to feel maybe mildly upset that it worked out the way that it did, but overjoyed that they have a more of a, uh, a genuine connection with you. And it feels less lonely. And it's pretty freaking wonderful to get to that point. So I got to be able to make amends as needed. And some of these amends are just for me. And some of them are, frankly, just kind of a a, a learning experience for both of us to learn that, okay, if I if I say I'm sorry... It's not a loss of face. It doesn't mean I'm in a one-down position and they're the top dog from now on. Uh, saying I'm sorry for abuse is actually an empowering thing because it takes our relationship to the next level of intimacy. And it empowers me to be more of a truth-sayer from then on. You know, you know what's interesting? What's that? Don't therapize me. But, <laughs> um, when, I was, when I was married, I, w I think that my ex-husband would say, that I could never admit I was wrong, that that would be the one thing he would say about me is that I would never admit I was wrong, which was probably true. And I admit I'm wrong all the time since the marriage, but in the marriage is when I felt the most helpless mm -hmm. in my whole life, mm -hmm. right? And that's when I would never admit I was wrong. Yeah, and that's why so many of these first marriages are starter marriages for a lot of us because we're so utterly unprepared. And you know, bringing up that example of you and your son, 
and and how he's able to communicate with you why why not teach our kids how to argue with each other respectfully or argue with us in a respectful way so there can be that give and take and in order to prep them for their own future in terms of mate selection and living out an intimate life with an with a partner and all the rest of it so i think all of that is really essential to to making that change and there's one last thing i wanted to say before we we closed for today you know one i think for a couple, it's really helpful if they can honestly and separately keep their own little journals, I mean a small notebook, and at the end of every day, just for one month, just one month's worth, if at the end of every day they can review their day separately from one another and mark down how many times with some little hash marks, how many times were they disrespectful or abusive or controlling that day. Those words are all interchangeable, by the way. Disrespectful, controlling, or abusive. So if I criticize, if I got in the car and she was playing country music when I hate country music and I reached over and said, I hate that shit, and I flicked the dial to something else, that would be an example of disrespect and controlling. Something I would never do to another human being, but somehow I justified doing it to the woman I love more than all others on the planet. Or the woman who says to her husband, you're not going dressed like that uh, when he comes out ready for the party or the get-together. And he said, what's wrong with it? You can't wear that. And speaking to him as if he were a a three-year-old instead of an adult person who gets to make his own choices. Um, At the end of every day, we make those little notations, how many times we were abusive. And all that does is increase our awareness of how controlling we are and how abusive we are. And what you would see if you, I think every person who would be willing to do that will see that over a month, whatever their high water mark is at the beginning of the month and the first week of the month, by the last week of the month, the abuse will be reduced to nearly zero because moral people hate treating people they love in a disrespectful, horrible way. Also very beautiful. Um, And on that note, thank you for more insight and making my brain grow bigger. (laughs) Um, Thank you for listening. And if you have questions for Stephen, please tweet us at StephenIngMFT. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a production by Ing Intellectual in cooperation with Estepona Group. Interview by Jackie Shelton. Music produced by Octophonics. Editing by Lucas Bichelli. To listen to more episodes, visit stephening.com.